0: And you can turn with me in your copy of God's Word. We are going to the Gospel of John. If you need a Bible, uh, we have a bunch back here on our resource table. Feel free to grab one of those. And if you don't have one at home, please keep it and let it be our gift to you today. Uh, Also, we have a ton of ESV Scripture journals back there. Um, I'd love for you to grab one of those as well and just make notes uh, and follow along with uh, our study through the gospel of John looks like this and if you have one of those go ahead and open it to page 10 this morning page 10 as we read our text today we're going to begin this morning John chapter 1 starting in verse 43 and we're going to go all the way uh, through the end of this chapter. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And this is the word of the Lord. All right, this is week three of our study of John's Gospel. And just keep your Bible open in front of you this morning. We're going to be looking at a number of things here in chapter one. And um, this week, as we wrap up this chapter, we wrap up with an account of Jesus seemingly calling his first disciples. And throughout chapter one, we've been pointing out some differences between John's gospel account and what are called the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you remember, they're called synoptic gospels because there are a lot of similarities among Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is distinct in many ways, and so we've been pointing out some of those. Distinctions as we've gone along. The synoptics record Jesus explicitly calling disciples to follow him, sometimes in dramatic fashion. Most notable is Simon Peter, who's out fishing in the boat, right? And they're not catching anything. And Jesus says, Well, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And they do it and they get this catch that's so big they can't even haul it into the boat. And the nets are breaking. And then Jesus famously says, come, and I will make you fishers of men. Or with the tax collector, Levi, or he's also called Matthew um, as well. Jesus says, follow me, and Matthew follows him. So that's what we see in the synoptics, and yet we get to John's gospel, and we get a bit of a different picture here in chapter 1. And it's different in that these guys seemingly seek out Jesus versus Jesus seeking them out. They seek out him and start following him Uh, more than he just kind of shows up out of nowhere and calls them. And before we get into our text, I want to back up a few verses. Look at verse 35. Remember this whole book began With John identifying Jesus as like the cosmic word of God. Remember, like John, John, in a very explicit way, started out by illuminating for us that Jesus is not just a prophet, not just a good teacher, not even just the Messiah or the Christ, but even more than that, he literally is God. He is the literal agent of creation, John says. And that's how he began this whole thing. And then he went straight into the story of John the Baptist, which is what we looked at last week. John the Baptist was a prophet who heralded the coming of Christ. And what we saw last week was that John pointed out Jesus as the Messiah to his own followers— And then verse 35, we see him do it again. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples who were with John heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, most of the time when John uses that word followed or following, he he means in in like a a spiritual sense, like I I am following you as my master. But, But here, these guys literally begin following Jesus, like trailing behind him. And Jesus then turns in verse 38 and speaks his first words of this book what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And this is a bit of a unique moment. Uh, The New Testament, as you may know, was primarily written in Greek. But this is a moment where we see the Aramaic language pop up. The Aramaic language was probably what was just Uh, was the common everyday language spoken probably by Jesus, probably by the disciples. They they quite possibly also spoke Greek. They probably knew some Hebrew as well. But at this point in time, Hebrew had probably died out as like an everyday spoken language. It would still be used in the temple, in the synagogues, in a formal capacity. Um, Yet more than likely, there probably was not a lot of Hebrew um, proper being spoken at this point. And notice what John does here. He translates for us the, uh, the Aramaic word that's spoken here, which is the word rabbi. That's, that's what they said to him, rabbi. And then John in parentheses tells us which means teacher. So, so he translates it for us. And remember our working hypothesis here is that John, the writer of this gospel, is perhaps writing to non-believers. So he's writing a gospel that wouldn't only be used by the church, but would also potentially be read by both Jews and Gentiles who are interested in the story of Jesus and interested in the gospel accounts. And so we think that one of John's goals here is evangelism, right? Is is sharing the message and the story and the good news of Jesus with those who may not necessarily believe it yet or who don't believe it yet. So he hasn't beat around the bush at all in identifying who Jesus really is. And he's also translating Aramaic for those who might not speak it. So he has his readers in mind here, and he's going to translate from the Hebrew and the Aramaic, something like seven times in this gospel. And we see it a few times in today's text as well. Let's read on verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. They stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour, probably something like 4 p.m. And one of the two who heard John speak, John the Baptist, speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah which means Christ. So here's another moment where we get a translation. We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew word, which means anointed one. And Christ, the Christ, is the Greek word that means anointed one, Christos. So he translates for us yet again. So you call him Jesus Christ, or if you call him Jesus Messiah, you are saying the same thing. He is Jesus, the anointed one. And that's a concept that goes back to the Old Testament. This idea um, primarily for the kings in the Old Testament, kings like Saul and David, they were anointed by the Lord for the positions that they had. But those words, that kind of language gets used also for the patriarchs. Right? For Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament, it gets used sometimes for the prophets. It's a somewhat common thing that we see, and what it indicates is God has set apart someone for specific work. And here Jesus is stepping into that space of Messiah, the ultimate King of Israel, the ultimate Savior, the ultimate promised one the new and better David. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, you should be called Cephas. Again, a translation, which means Peter, right? So here in John, there is no boat, there is no enormous catch of fish, there is no come and I will make you fishers of men. Instead, Peter's brother Andrew who was a disciple of John the Baptist, discovers the anointed one through John the Baptist, and then immediately goes and gets his brother Peter and brings him to Jesus. He takes him to Jesus. And now that's not to say that the account of uh, Peter in the boat and the fish, as if that's untrue or something. No, remember, we're getting the perspective of this particular gospel writer, we're getting John's account of what happened. And what we said over the last couple of weeks is John probably already knows what has been accounted for in the other gospels. And so um, it's quite possible here that he's very intentionally trying to provide an account that is in addition to or different than what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have provided us with. So it's not to say that Peter and the fish and that whole story is not true. Um, What I think is happening here is I think we're actually seeing a moment that is before that. I think we're seeing a moment that is earlier than the moment where Peter is in the boat and they have the enormous catch of fish. This is seemingly the moment when Peter first meets Jesus, and it explains why in the synoptic Gospels, Jesus can just seemingly walk up out of nowhere and say, follow me, and everybody drops everything and follows him. Like like it reads almost... Like this, you know, apropos of nothing, Jesus pops up and says a few words, and then suddenly everybody becomes a zombie and follows him, right? But that's not really what's happening here. These guys already know who Jesus is. They've already been told about him. They are aware of his presence and his existence. And what we're getting here in John, I think, is, is the moment where Peter actually meets him for the first time. And then this whole section ends with something a little strange. Jesus meets Peter, and he gives him a nickname. (laughs) He says, I'm going to call you Cephas, which I I need to start doing stuff like that when I meet people. (laughs) I'm going to call you chicken legs. (laughs) But but again, we get a translation here. Like Cephas is an Aramaic word that means rock or stone. And it might be confusing because he, he says... It's Cephas, which means Peter, but Peter is, is just the translation. Peter uh, is the Greek word, again, and it also means rock or stone. Petros, Petros, was probably how you said that, and that's his actual Greek name, and it gets anglicized into Peter in our English Bibles. And then we get into today's text, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And here in the first part of John's gospel, John, notice, is giving us a like, day-to-day account. Notice how many paragraphs here in chapter 1 begin with the words, the next day, the next day again. Um, and then we'll get into chapter 2, and it begins by saying the third day. So it's literally like this linear, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. It's not in, entirely clear where we started out. You know, it says the next day he went to Galilee, but, but where were we? Not entirely sure. Um, not in Galilee, obviously, um, perhaps closer to Jerusalem. Um, Galilee would have been a couple days, three days maybe, journey by walking to the north of Jerusalem. Maybe closer to Jerusalem because earlier in chapter 1, a group of Levites and priests came from Jerusalem to meet with John the Baptist. Um, But here at this point, Jesus decides that he's going to travel to Galilee, um, and it's going to be multiple days. He finds Philip and said to him, follow me. That's the end of verse 43. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. This is the first time we get that explicit of a, hey, come, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And this feels a little bit more like the accounts of the synoptic gospels, where it seems like Jesus just walks up to people and says, follow me. But verse 44 uh, may be a little bit of a clue here that Philip has been made aware by Peter and Andrew. And, and then Philip goes and finds Nathanael, who is sometimes called Bartholomew as well. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. That's something we see repeated here. Like when the two disciples of John first find Jesus, they say, where are you staying? He says, come and see. And then Philip goes and finds Nathanael and says, we found him. Come and see. Come with me. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I was preaching on this text once, and I think I offended by s- some people by saying that Nazareth was like the Blanchard of its day. <laughs> so I'll change it today. It's like the Keithville of <laughs> its day. Uh, it was small, uh, probably fewer than 2,000 people. Uh, it was more rural, uh, it was more working class. You, it's just a place you just don't expect people of like s- significance. To come from there. You don't expect people of prominence to come from there. Occasionally it happens, but it feels almost more like an accident than anything. You know, you expect this kind of person to come out of Jerusalem, right? Like the Messiah? The Christ? Surely he's coming out of Jerusalem. Surely he's coming out of like a priestly family or something, I mean, something of prominence. And, And yet we found him and he's from Nazareth, of all places, what, what's he doing here? Verse 47 Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see things greater than these. So let's pause here for a moment. Uh, We're going to come back. We're going to look at verse 51. But I want us to realize just a few things here, a few key points for us to take away with us. Um, First of all, this is literally the first Christian evangelism to ever be done. What we're witnessing right here in chapter 1, the first Christian evangelism to ever be done. Not the first people to tell somebody about God the Father, but the first Christian evangelism to be done. We have found the Christ and now we're going to go tell other people. People discover Jesus and the listen, the natural response is to bring other people to him. Not just to say, hey, we found him, and this is who it is, but come and see. Come with me and let me take you to him. John points out Jesus to Andrew. Andrew brings Peter. Peter and Andrew perhaps are the connection to Philip. Philip brings Nathaniel. Very quickly, this has gone from nobody to several people. And notice, these guys are not content to simply tell other people About Jesus, they all embody that come and see posture. Not not just here's who he is, but let me introduce you to him. Those were the words that Philip used with Nathaniel, as we said, come and see. They aren't content to say we found him, they want to physically, literally lead people to him. But then also, John gives us a picture of three kinds of people here, I think. Three kinds of people in the evangelism process. There are believers, there are seekers, and then there are skeptics. Believers, seekers, and skeptics. The believers are people like Andrew and the other unnamed disciple who may very well be John, the gospel writer. The other unnamed disciple who immediately believe based solely on the witness of John the Baptist. I mean, they are so bought into the life and ministry of John the Baptist. When he says, behold, the Lamb of God, they drop everything and start following Jesus right then. They believe John fully and they believe Jesus fully like they are no questions asked, no skepticism, no doubt. Seemingly like they are just bought in immediately, very quickly. Um, This happens with them. The seekers are people like Peter, who, by all accounts, are open to the reality of Jesus, even if they maybe don't initially drop everything to follow him. If we're right and the account of Peter in the boat with the fish occurs a little bit later, that really seems to be the point where Peter goes, okay, this is him. Like, that's the point where he leaves his nets, he leaves his livelihood behind, and he follows Jesus as his master. So, Peter, seemingly, here is open to Jesus as the Christ, but maybe not has gotten to that point where he's like, I'm all in, okay? And, and then there are skeptics like Nathaniel. He hears about Jesus, but his initial response is not the response that Andrew had, right? And his response isn't perhaps like Peter, even though we don't really get a big response from Peter in John's gospel at this point. He hears about Jesus, Nathaniel, and his initial response is kind of like, really? Nazareth? Philip has to prod him. Philip has to push him a bit. Come, Come with me. Just, just come and forget what I'm saying. Just come see it. And so Nathaniel comes to see Jesus and gives, Jesus gives him this like personalized greeting that throws him off. 47, verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Which is, is kind of like a formal greeting that people would perhaps give to each other. Um, it's a way of saying, Here, here's, here's like a good guy. Like, here's like a true Israelite, somebody who truly is seeking to follow the Lord. But it's, it's like a, it's a greeting of endearment and respect. And Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Um, and people, people read that in different ways. Um, some people think that the words that Jesus speaks to Nathaniel here ring true in his own heart. And those words are as if, like it makes clear to Nathaniel, this person really does see me. This person really does know me. Some people read this as Nathaniel responding, saying, why are you talking to me like you know me? Right? Why are you talking to me like we have a pre-existing relationship? Um, So he's perhaps skeptical here. His skepticism is seen in his unsurety of something good coming out of Nazareth, also possibly here going, who is this guy talking to me like he knows who I am? So what's going on here? Jesus does something that he hasn't done with any of these other guys, and he gives just a little taste of his power by displaying supernatural knowledge into verse 48 Jesus answered him before Philip called you before Philip said come and see when you were under the fig tree I saw you Nathaniel answered him rabbi I I mean there's just like the, the switch gets flipped all of a sudden how do you know me to rabbi you are the son of god you are the king of israel like he suddenly like lays on him these grandiose titles you are everything that we have been looking for for centuries as the people of israel jesus answered him because i said to you i saw you under the fig tree Do you believe you will see things greater than these? And this is a bit of a strange scene, but I think what happens here is that Jesus tells Nathanael something that no one else could have known. When no one else saw you, I saw you. And that's enough. That's enough to convince Nathanael. And he immediately goes from skeptic to believer and he confesses it. Notice that that's another part of this, not only saying, hey, come and see, but also this confession, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So, so we're living it, we believe it so fully we're trying to bring other people to it, but we're also confessing it with our mouths. So you have believers who are all in here. You have skeptics who initially are not so sure. And and those are almost like two ends of the spectrum in a way. Aside from just outright unbelievers have no interest, not willing to entertain the idea. And often the effort of believers will be devoted to skeptics um, because they are the ones who are most obviously not yet fully on board with Jesus. Right? So... True believers are really looking out for those people, and, and they're, they're, they're wanting to have these conversations. We, we have found the Christ. Come come on, come with me. I want to show him to you, because I, I, I recognize maybe that you're on the fence. But the group that really flies below the radar, particularly in Shreveport, Louisiana, in today's world, are the people who are seekers. Those who are open to or interested in the prospect that Jesus may be Lord and who are in no way like antagonistic to the gospel, but who also may not be believers yet. Jesus may not be their Lord yet, even though they are open to the prospect that he may be Lord. And the problem in the church can be that seekers actually get missed because they can present as someone who is on the inside, do you know what I'm talking about? Particularly around here, if you've grown up in the in the church world, um, whether Protestant or Catholic, in Louisiana, man, there are people who very well may not be believers, but they present as believers because they know the language, and they show up for stuff. They're at the events. When I got started in church ministry, it was during a time that was known as the seeker-sensitive movement. Um, and which still goes on to some extent today. Um, and, but it was a time where many people had concluded that there were a great deal of seekers out there. Not atheists, not agnostics, not even skeptics, but, but seekers, people who were really interested In the faith, really interested in the things of God, perhaps, really interested in the idea that Jesus may be Lord, interested in the things of the church, but maybe didn't really know how to crack into it. The view was that the church in America was inwardly focused and insular and intimidating and, and, and club like and cliquish, and in some cases, people who were interested would find it really hard to, like, break into the circle of the church. So the seeker-sensitive movement sought to tear down those barriers by primarily retooling Sunday mornings to be all about those people, to be all about seekers. And in many ways, the pendulum swung all the way to the other side. Churches started paying close attention to their use of insider language, if you've been a part of a church for any length of time, there can be this insider language that we know about. We're speaking the same words, but somebody comes in off the street and goes, I don't know what any of this means. Sacraments? What, what is that? Liturgy? What is that? Even though it's common knowledge upon, uh, among the, the initiated. In some churches the focus shifted from making disciples to simply helping people form social connections. Um, in some churches, sermons became more topical and self-healthy rather than biblical and exegetical where we're walking through the Scriptures and seeking to bring this text of Scripture alive in our lives, and allow the Lord to speak to us through His Word. And many of those things were well-intentioned, but unfortunately in some cases, what wound up happening was that instead of asking, what do people most need?, Churches instead began asking, what do people most want? And you and I both know that the things we most need and the things we most want are not always the same thing. So unfortunately, the result, not everywhere, but in some places, was a toned-down gospel. We don't want to scare anybody off by being too explicit with this Jesus stuff. A worship experience that took its primary cues from... Not scripture, but just prevailing secular culture. How do we entertain people? How do we, how do we kind of hook them and capture them? And also a really low level of challenge. If you read the story of Jesus, Jesus is constantly challenging people by the like, standard that he's calling them to live up to. Like the rich young ruler. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Right? I want to follow you, Jesus, but I've got to go bury my deceased father. Let the dead bury themselves. If you want to come after me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Like, there are times where it's like Jesus says things almost just to see who's, who's going to walk away and who's still going to be on board. There are times when he looks at his disciples and goes, do you want to leave too? So, so Jesus's call is way up here. And unfortunately, when the focus is on just like, can we just get people in the door and can we just hold people and get them here? And if we get them here, isn't that good enough? We don't want to scare them off with any of this following Jesus with your life stuff. And yet the example is that Jesus didn't seem concerned about that at all. So rather than asking, what do people need, the question became, what do people want? Instead of asking the question, what does God desire of us when we gather together as the church, the question became, how do we best entertain people? So rather than God being the audience, you guys became the audience. And that has not been the case for most of church history. When we gather together... The goal is not that we would be pleased. The goal is that we would seek to please him through pouring out our hearts to him in worship. So here's the point, And this is true for believers, seekers, and skeptics. What we most need is a true encounter with Jesus. We need to not only hear about Jesus... Or to be like aware of Jesus We need an experience of Jesus And I would submit to you that that is the purpose of evangelism That that is what we see modeled for us here in this text That we need to reframe evangelism from being this thing Where we simply tell people about Jesus But much much more like what we see here in John Where we are guiding people to Jesus While telling them about him It's not an either-or proposition, it's a both-and. Literally taking people by the hand and saying, come and see, come and see. Now, that all said, Jesus is not here physically, is he? He's resurrected and ascended. So how do we take people by the hand and lead them to Christ in today's world? How do we say, come and see, and it not just be empty words? I want to give you three things as we start to wrap up today. First of all, I think one of the ways that we do this is by leading people to our own stories. Leading people to our own stories. There are few things that are as compelling as a personal story, as a a personal account. Um, At our new members class last week, everyone shared their story where they came from, what their childhood was like, what their, what their faith story was, and it was incredibly encouraging to me. Part of the reason why it's encouraging is because it came from a place of honesty for everybody. We have all been through hard things. We all have questions. We all have fears. We all may have doubts. You have some people, though, who have had an encounter with Jesus that has changed them, And you have people who are more in the seeker or skeptic group who have maybe not had that encounter with Jesus in a way that has led to them giving him their lives. But if you're someone who has had a life-changing experience with Christ, one of the greatest gifts that you can give another person is your own story, is your account of what Jesus has done in your life. Uh, Don Whitney, who's a professor at Southern Seminary, said that if you have been saved, You already have the tools you need to share the gospel with another person. Even if you've never been trained in any way to share the gospel with another person. You have your story. You have your experience of what Jesus has done in your life. You may not be a theological scholar, most of us aren't, but you know what happened to you. Like the blind man in scripture saying, all I know is that I was blind, but now I see. I know what happened to me. So don't be scared to share your faith with another person by sharing your own story. Don't be scared to do that because you think you don't know everything or you don't have all the answers. Your experience is real and valid. And this is the very essence of being a witness. And that's a theme that John, it's a thread John will pull on throughout this gospel, is this idea of guys like Andrew being a witness to Christ, And by witness, that doesn't mean just telling people about Jesus. It means literally telling other people about your experience, telling them what you saw. If you witnessed a crime, you're not going to tell somebody else's story. You're going to share the account of what happened to you or what you saw take place. So lead people to your own story. Secondly, we want to lead people to the scriptures, And this should be a no-brainer for us, but we want to connect people with the Word of God. It is living and active, right? I saw an interview with Stephen Colbert, of all people, this last week. Uh, He's a Roman Catholic, and he was asked in this interview, um, what book should everyone read? And I know he's a big, like, Lord of the Rings fan, so that's kind of what I was expecting him to say. But what he said was, the Bible. And and here was his proposition. His case was basically, even if you don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, this book has been the predominant influence on Western culture, art, and literature for the last 2,000 years. And don't you owe it to yourself to read it if anything, just so that you can understand what all of these other people were talking about? <coughs> you got a point. But how many, how many personal stories have you heard of people who were not believers, or who were nominal believers, maybe seekers, who started reading the Bible, and suddenly things changed for them? How many times have you heard a story of somebody who literally had an encounter with Christ by encountering Him in God's Word? It's not just a book. God is using it. God is working in and through it. Several of you who are a part of BSF, you've probably heard lots of stories like this. Like people who just randomly got invited to come to Bible study fellowship and start studying the book of Ruth, or something random, and they encounter the Lord and become believers. Amazing. But then third, we lead them to the church. We lead them to the church. Now notice I don't say we lead them to church. I said we lead them to the church. I don't mean we try to get people to go to church or to attend our church event, That's not our primary goal, but instead we invite people into our lives and into our faith family. Not just the event, but the network of Christ-centered relationships that we are a part of. Because as we said last week, we encounter Christ through others. Andrew and the other disciple encountered Christ through John the Baptist. Peter encountered Christ through Andrew Nathaniel encountered Christ through through Philip and and everybody here somebody has worked in your life somebody has been a a part of your life to, to call you to Jesus or to bring you into relationship with other Christ followers and this makes total sense why? because the Bible says the church is the body of Christ you and me We are Jesus' body in our world today. Even though Jesus is not here in bodily form, he has called and equipped those of us who are believers, the church, to be his body to our world. And this is a responsibility that we have to undertake with the utmost gravity. We should feel a weight that comes along with being his representatives in our world. Because just as the church can be an incredibly life-giving, life-altering thing for people, it can also be devastating, can it? Some of us have experienced that devastation in our own lives. You deeply connected with the church and were subsequently sinned against or hurt. And many people don't come back from that. Almost weekly we hear stories in the news of sex abuse financial impropriety, abusive, coercive leadership in churches around the country, around the world. And that cannot be who we are. It cannot be who we are. We are not perfect. We are all deeply in need of God's grace, but God's vision for the church is that it would be like what his vision for Israel was in the Old Testament, that we would be a people set apart who are distinct from the rest of the world and the rest of the culture, not because of our name or because of our denominational affiliation or because of a building or because of a pastor or because of ministry offerings, but because of our love for others. Jesus prayed that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. And so, guys, that is our pursuit. Along the way, people are going to mess up. Yes, there is potential that someone will hurt you. But because we are a set-apart people, because we are different, because we are seeking to be distinct, we are supposed to respond differently in those moments. Rather than isolating ourselves or pursuing vengeance, we want to engage the biblical concept of peacemaking to pursue not just resolution in those moments, but to pursue forgiveness and restoration. And we do that because that is what Christ has done for us. He pursued forgiveness and restoration for all of us who were separated from the Father because of sin. And because He has done it to us, so should we extend it to others. Verse 51, And He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This seems like a weird thing to say right here. But Jesus, like he very often does, is calling our attention back to the Old Testament. Back to the Old Testament. He's actually calling our attention specifically back to Genesis 28. To the story of Jacob. Let me read this to you real quick. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set So much like Jesus revealed himself to Nathaniel by saying, I saw you under the fig tree, he also does this callback to a time when God revealed himself to Jacob in this famous scene known as Jacob's Ladder. Jacob has this vision, he realizes that God is real, and God in turn repeats the covenant that he made with Abraham. He repeats his covenant, reaffirms his covenant with Jacob just like he told Abraham, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Y'all are going to go in every direction and I'm going to give you this land. Your descendants will have this land. It will be their home and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And and little did Nathaniel know he was looking into the face of the fulfillment of that prophecy that all the families of the earth would be blessed through the line of Jacob. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Incredible. Jesus, if you think me knowing where you were sitting was amazing, just wait. Just wait. So here's today's takeaway. John's going to continue to focus on the role of disciples being a witness for Christ and thus bringing people to Jesus. And a question for you today is what have you witnessed? Have you had an encounter with Jesus? Is your life different now because of him? Do you see him as your master? You see him as the king of your life. If so, you have something to share, first of all. And whether you realize it or not, you have people around you to share this with. But a question for you to consider this week is this. What are you truly evangelical about? We are all evangelists for something. The question is, what is it in your life? Because I talk to many people who are evangelical about the series they just finished on Netflix, or the new podcast they just discovered, um, or sports, or politics. What are the things that you most want to talk about with people? What are the things that you're most excited and enthusiastic about that you just can't wait to share with others, to share with your friends? What are the things that you are truly like, evangelizing other people into? Where you're not just saying, hey man, I saw, saw this great series, but you're saying, hey, let me give you my Netflix login so that you can get on and watch it. What is it for you? And what if it wasn't Netflix? Netflix. What if it wasn't a podcast or sports or politics, but what if it was something of actual eternal value? Something that could truly change another person's life. What if that was the gift that you gave to those around you in your daily life? Let's consider those things this morning as we go to him in prayer. Let's pray. Father, Truly this morning, I pray that you would reveal to our hearts the things that we are inclined to love more than you. Even for those of us who are believers, we confess that we do not believe perfectly. And that as we say often, we are all unbelievers in some way, some area of our lives that we have not fully submitted to you, Lord. God, right now, would you make us aware of what those things are? It could be our safety and security. It could be our finances. It could be our children. It could be our jobs, our livelihoods. Father, what does it look like in our lives to truly lay everything at your feet? To not just call you Lord, but to live as if you are Lord. And Father, would you give us each a vision for how that impacts how we live among others? That we would become people who are passionately excited and enthusiastic about the fact that we have gone from death to life. And that we can't wait to not just tell somebody about that. But that we truly cannot wait to have <coughs> someone we love experience it as well. Help us, Father. Forgive us when we fail you in this. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, and may we be quick to listen and obey. In the name of Jesus, amen. Stand with us.